Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Jonah chapter 1. We started in the book of Jonah last week, and we got through verse 3 as we kind of looked at God coming to Jonah and God calling Jonah and raising Jonah up and trying to send Jonah out and Jonah rebelling and running away from where God was sending. Jonah gets up and runs in the opposite direction as far as he can possibly conceive of going from where God would call him to be. And so this morning we come to find Jonah still on the run from God in Jonah chapter 1 beginning in verse 4. If you don't have a copy of the text with you in front of you, it's going to be on the screen as we read it together. And so I encourage you to follow along either there in the Bible in front of you or on the screen behind me. In Jonah chapter 1 beginning in verse 4, the text reads, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In the very first installment of his um, works, uh, known as the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, introduces these children who find themselves now in the land of Narnia uh, to the king who rules the land of Narnia. His name is Aslan. And he introduces Aslan to these four young children uh, through a family of beavers who can talk, right? Pretty crazy stuff going on in Narnia. But the fam- these four children run across this family of beavers who welcome them into their home and they begin to speak to them of this prophecy that they, the beavers believe, the children are there to fulfill. And they talk about how Aslan has already gathered a great army and they should go to meet him. And they reveal to him that, them, that Aslan is no mere man like what they would expect to see, but he's actually a lion. And in response to that revelation, Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. 
That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And this truth that these four children discover about Aslan there in that fanciful world of Narnia is the same truth lodged at the very heart of Jonah's experience with God in these four chapters that we're going to read and study together. Jonah comes to grips with the fact that indeed God is not safe, but he is good. And that he is the king and that he rules and reigns over everything that he has created That truth is lodged at the heart of Jonah's experience with God. And reality is, for you and I, it's lodged at the heart of our experience with him as well. That he is not safe, but he is good. So let's take a look at this story as it unfolds for us on these pages and consider how is it that God is not safe, but then also how is it that he is good. If you take a look at the story, the first thing that jumps off the page to us as we consider the fact that God is not safe is this, is that God chases us whenever we run from him. He chases us. Now, last week we saw that whenever God comes to Jonah to call him, Jonah gets up and he heads in completely the opposite direction. And we saw that when we run from God, we're running from the God who calls us, but we're also running from the image of the God who has created us. So whenever God calls us, we often run in the opposite direction of where he would send us. So when God sends Jonah east to Nineveh, Jonah rises up and he flees as far as his mind can conceive of going to the west, to Tarshish, to modern day Spain, which was in his day the ends of the earth. They didn't know America was over there, all right? They didn't know there was sea to shining sea there across the Atlantic Ocean. In his mind, he was going as far as he could get from where God was sending him. He's running from the God who calls him, but he's also running from the image of the God that had created him. If you notice at the end of the book in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah says, Whenever I rose to go to Tarshish, this is why I went. I didn't go because I was afraid of failing in this endeavor that you were sending to me to accomplish, but I rose to go to Tarshish because I was afraid of succeeding. I was afraid the Ninevites would repent, and you, God, would be gracious Because God in Exodus 34 and throughout the Psalms and here in Jonah reveals his character as one who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But Jonah doesn't reflect that image of God. Rather, Jonah, it's kind of like a lot of church members I've met in some experiences, right? He's calloused and hard-hearted, quick to rage and abounding in indifference. And oftentimes we are in the exact same place as Jonah. So when we run from God, we saw last week that we're running away from the God who calls us and where he calls us to, and we're running away from his image. We don't reflect the loving, gracious, compassionate heart of God whenever we're indifferent and hard-hearted and calloused. But the truth is, in verses 4 to 16 and 17, and really the rest of the book, is this, is that God is not done with Jonah. Because when Jonah runs, God chases him. 
He chases after him. Look in verses four and five, the text that we just read together. Whenever God, Jonah boards the boat and they head toward Tarshish, right? The text tells us in verses four and five that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And in verse 11, where the sea grows more and more tempestuous. In other words, the further they sail, the more difficult and challenging things become. But that God is the one who hurls the wind upon the sea is not some chance. By some chance, they happen to sail into a storm. These were experienced sailors at first glance of any kind of difficulty or storm or weather on the horizon. They would have delayed the journey. But no, out of nowhere, this storm gets hurled upon the sea. And everyone in this story including Jonah eventually, recognizes that the howling winds and the raging waves are indeed God's judgment. God chasing after Jonah. Look in verse 5, this very mixed bag of sailors, right? Whenever the winds begin to howl and the waves begin to pound against the side of the boat, they each cry out to their own God. So they all got a God, right? They're all religious to some degree, and they begin to cry out to this God. In fact, they go so far as to go down below deck and begin to take the cargo, which was, by the way, their livelihood, okay? Their livelihood. Their very food in their bellies was dependent upon the transportation of this cargo from one port to the other, and they go below because they're petrified. They're terrified. They begin to throw cargo overboard to lighten the load so the ship doesn't crash under the waves, And they begin to cry out to their gods. They recognize this is no ordinary storm. These were men who had sailed the seas all their lives. And they recognize this is no ordinary storm. In verse 6, when the captain finds Jonah below deck, fast asleep, he goes down to him and he says, get up and call out to your God. Why? Because the captain recognizes that this swirling winds and the raging waves are no mere storm. That that there's a God who is sending judgment. That there's a God who is pursuing. There's a God who has been spurned. In verses 9 and 10, after the lot falls on Jonah, Jonah finally, right? Jonah finally cops to being the cause of all this chaos. Right? He's like, it's me. All right? It, It really is. And God is after me. He's chasing me. You see, when God is spurned by those who rebel and run, his anger is kindled against sin, and it's stirred up, and and God chases after Jonah. God is pursuing Jonah in this storm with whatever means and measures are necessary. God is not safe, church. He's not safe. Now, those who mistakenly believe, and there are some of us who perhaps operate with this assumption that God would never... God would never, right, try and compel someone to do something against their will. He never would do that, right? He's a perfect gentleman. He's not going to try and, ra- ra- he's not going to try and compel someone or push someone out to do something against their will. But those who operate with that kind of preconceived notion, they never really come to wrestle with the text and the message in the book of Jonah. See, in our Christian subculture here in America in particular, with T-shirts, right? We all got a T-shirt, right? With some kind of catchy scripture verse or slogan on it somewhere in our drawers. In fact, if we've been to most camps or conferences and retreats, we've probably got a whole drawer full of these things, right? We got T-shirts and we got bumper stickers and we got bookstores and we got radio stations and TV stations and entertainment and schools that are safe for the entire family, right? Safe for the entire family. However, 
oftentimes those types of ideologies, they don't do justice to the, uh, the realities of a God who hurls winds and creates tempests and causes seas to rage, to rage and threatens to destroy ships. Doesn't do justice to that. Do you, I mean, do you really think that Jonah, based on his experience here with God, would stand back and go, God is safe for the entire family? Right? Here's Jonah and all these sailors. Do you think that that's how they feel in this moment? I, I have my suspicions. But Jonah finds that whenever God calls, there is no escape. Whenever God summons, there is no place that we can find refuge from it. We find the same thing to be true in our running from God, that he pursues us and that he chases us. Sinclair Ferguson said it this way. He said, we cannot escape God's presence even if we will not joyfully live in it. We cannot escape God's presence even if we will not joyfully live in it and that God will send storm after storm after storm in our lives to chase us and pursue us whenever we are on the run from him. For some of us, it might be a kind of a psychological or a spiritual or emotional storm like he does in David's life. In Psalm 32, whenever David is feeling crushed under the weight of his own sin before he cries out in confession to God, in Psalm 32, 3 to 4, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then the psalmist, David says, Selah, which means this. Think about that for a minute, right? Pause and reflect on that. That whenever I was running from God, that it felt like internally my bones were being ground up into powder. That I had no strength. It had been sucked out of me. And some of us have been there whenever we've been running from God. On an account of our sin and this self-imposed storm, and it's felt like our guilt and our shame was like a, a millstone around our neck that was drowning us at the bottom of the ocean, and that no matter how hard we paddled and no matter how hard we swam, we could never make it back up above the crest of the, of the waves. Kind of like David, there might be a psychological storm or an emotional or a spiritual storm in our lives whenever we have chosen to run from God and the guilt of our sin becomes so heavy in our lives that it feels like, it feels like our bones are wasting away. It feels like it's 197 degrees outside all day, every day, and we cannot lift a finger to move forward. For some of us, it might be a relational storm. We might have run away from God's call in our lives as husbands or God's call in our lives as wives, either to lovingly and sacrificially serve our wives or to affirm and nurture and respect our husbands. And there may be a relational storm in our lives right now. Now, for some of you, that relational storm may be of none of your own doing. It may be all about the sin of someone else who has turned and walked away. But some of us might find ourselves in a relational storm, whether it be with a husband or a wife, because we've neglected or run from God's call. And it might be that some of us find ourselves in a relational storm with our kids right now, with our children. Some of us might find ourselves in this relational storm with our, with our kids, and, and, and maybe their rebellion and their running has been, again, no fault of our own. We lovingly served them, we sacrificed for them, we instructed them, and we taught them, and we served them, we disciplined them. And yet at some point, right, parents? At some point, every child becomes responsible for the decisions that they're going to make in life. 
And so it may be that it's of no fault of our own, but there may be some of us in here this morning who are in the midst of a relational storm with our kids as they rebel and as they struggle with sin, and it might be something that is self-imposed and we've brought upon ourselves at least partially. Because when God called us to be active in their lives, we ran away toward passivity. When God called us to be engaged with them from the time that they were born to the time that they finish high school and they move out on their own, we disengaged. It may be that God called us to instruct them and we sent them to church and a Christian school. Now listen, there's no, I I want you to bring them to church, right? That's a good place for them to be. And maybe that is where God has you to send them for their education to a Christian school. The problem is, is whenever mothers and fathers think that because I'm sending my kid to church or because I'm sending them to a Christian school, that replaces my investment and my instruction in their life. There's a difference between sending them to Christian school and the church to reinforce what they're receiving from you as a mother or a father in your home versus sending them to a church or a Christian school to replace what they're missing from you. Big difference. Or perhaps whenever God called you to sacrifice for them and to discipline them and to love them well, maybe you sacrifice them on the altar of worldly success and status to make a name for yourself. So maybe right now they're running and they're rebelling and partially it's a self-imposed storm that you've brought on yourself. And if it is, what your kids need to see is for you to turn from your disengagement, for you to turn from your passivity, for you to turn from your lack of willingness to instruct and to sacrifice and to discipline and turn towards them in love and in grace and in truth. See, when we run, God chases. And oftentimes he does it just like he does with Jonah, with storms. But God is not safe as well on the fact that not only does he chase us, but he also rebukes us. He also rebukes us. He kind of rattles our cages sometimes, doesn't he? He kind of gets up in our face, right, like a coach with a, with a football player on the sideline, kind of grabs his face max and gets right up in that and says, listen, you got you to gotta snap to it, kid, right? Or whatever coaches say to football players on the sidelines, okay? But he, listen, he kind of rattles their cages a little bit, right? And he rebukes us. If you notice, in the, if you go back even into Genesis chapter 12, and one of the things that God rebukes Jonah here for is his hollow religion. His hollow religion. If you go back into Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, and he promises to bless him so that he would be a blessing to the nations, to the world. And then you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul says that we are not saved by works, but we're saved by grace, through faith, and in Christ, but rather we are saved for works. He says, God saved you for to do these works that he prepared for you in advance to do. As Martin Luther says, listen, God doesn't need your works, but your neighbor does. Your neighbor does. And if you notice the events as they transpire in in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 5, for instance, the sailors, what happens with them? They grow fearful because of the storm that God has sent, and they cry out to their gods, and they begin to dump cargo into the sea. Right? While Jonah descends below deck and falls fast asleep while the world above him is threatening to break up. In fact, one Jewish commentator on this text, as he reflected on how the, the Hebrew syntax and the language, 
Uh, that just means how the language functions. All right, as we reflected on how the language in the Hebrew functions here, he said, listen, more than likely what's going on here and the picture that's being painted for us is this, is that while, while the sailors are trying to throw cargo overboard and while they are desperately crying out to their gods to save them from this impending storm that they have found that has descended upon them, while they're doing that, Jonah's probably watching them as he walks below deck to go lay down and fall asleep. That these two things are more than likely based on the way the Hebrew language is working here are happening simultaneously. So that Jonah is turning a blind eye to the needs of the world. In fact, Jewish tradition also held that these sailors aboard this ship, that they represented the 70 nations from across the globe. That's why each one of them is calling out to their own gods. They each had their own national god they're calling out to. So in a very real way, as the world around Jonah is threatening to break apart at the seams, Jonah is going down beneath the deck to fall asleep, turning a blind eye to the needs that exist all around him. And God gets in his face mask and he shakes him up a little bit. Because Jonah, if you look in verse 9, it's pregnant with all kinds of meaning. In verse 9, Jonah's statement, he says this. Whenever they ask him, who are you? Where did you come from? What country are you? What's your occupation? Listen to what he says to them. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. There's a little irony in that statement when Jonah says, I fear the Lord, right? That I worship God, that I revere him. Well, if, if, if Jonah was really, in a, his heart was really in a disposition to worship God and to revere him, he probably wouldn't be fleeing to Tarshish whenever God called him to Nineveh. But also notice what he, how he identifies himself. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew. I'm a member of the nation of Israel which were God's chosen and redeemed people, that God had come to his people in Israel or in Egypt and he had broken the bonds of slavery and he had led them across the sea through dry land and caused the sea to collapse around the Egyptians as they pursued after them. Jonah says, I'm one of those who have that heritage, who have that story, who have that history. God loved us and he saved us. And when you look at Genesis chapter 12, and when you look at Ephesians chapter 2, it becomes so evident, glaringly evident, that our identity as God's people, our identity as God's people should be a blessing to God's world. And yet Jonah, whenever God's world is threatening to break apart, is turning a blind eye to the great needs that exist around him, and he's going down beneath the deck to fall asleep. In fact, the text, when it says fast asleep, it's the exact same word used in Genesis chapter uh, 2, whenever God comes to Adam and he causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam so that he can take a rib out of his side and form the woman, right? It's like anesthesia, I would hope, for Adam's sake, all right? And that's the kind of sleep that Jonah's in beneath the deck. Fast asleep, knocked out, oblivious to the cares of the world that's around him. And unfortunately, unfortunately, often the church is the same. But you notice when the captain comes down below deck in verse 6, what does he say to Jonah? 
Arise and call out. Now those words had to ring in Jonah's ear because in, back in chapter 1, verse 2, God says the exact same thing to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh and call out. The captain comes down and says, Arise and call out to your God that he might be gracious to us. See, what, what, what the captain comes down below deck to do is to be the mouthpiece of God to rebuke this running prophet who's running away from where God is sending him. He's turning a blind eye to the needs of the world. In fact, one commentator, as he reflected upon what's going on here in Jonah chapter 1, says this, that what happens here in Jonah chapter 1, verse 6, is that the world is rebuking the church for her lack of compassion, for her lack of concern, for her indifference and callousness, for her hard-heartedness toward the needs of the world around her. Jonah's asleep, and oftentimes, so are we. And essentially, what the captain says when he comes down below deck is this. He says, your personal faith, rise, cry out to your God. Your personal faith must be practiced for some public good. Your personal faith must be practiced for some public good. He says, everyone else is above ship, above deck, throwing cargo overboard, and they are prayerfully and fearfully working, Jonah, and you're asleep. You're asleep in an hour of greatest need and indifferent and callous. Your personal faith, Jonah, you should exercise that. You should practice that, Jonah. You should leverage that for public good, for the good of the world that's around you. And that call that the captain makes to Jonah in verse 6 of chapter 1 is the same call God comes over and over and over again to make to his church today is that our personal faith must be practiced for some public good. Let me share with you a couple of ways that can take place. First of all, we talk around Sabine Creek Fellowship about declaring and demonstrating our faith. So I want to break it down into those two Ds. First of all, declaring your faith. You practice your personal faith for some kind of public good by declaring your faith. I want you to notice when the, when the sailors are throwing over stuff overboard and they're crying out to their gods. And in fact, later on in the text, the text tells us that as the sea grew more and more tempestuous. I love that's a great word, isn't it? As the sea raged more and more around them, they're rowing harder and harder to try and get back to land. So as the world is trying to offload cargo and steer the ship back to land in the midst of this storm. What they need is to know that there's a God who created them. There's a God who created the heavens and the earth. This very confession that Jonah makes. And while the world around you is working to try and row their way out of the storms of their own lives, what they need is for you to come into their life and take your personal faith and declare it for their good so they would know there was one to look to in the midst of the storm that we would declare our faith. We would declare our faith either by sharing the news personally with someone, the good news of Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension. Or maybe you would invite them, right? You can share it personally or invite them to hear it corporately here at SCF. So one way that you can exercise your public faith or your private faith for public good or your personal faith for public good is through sharing it, through declaring it to others. But secondly, also by demonstrating it. 
by demonstrating your faith. In other words, living out the implications of what you believe. For instance, there's several things I want to draw to your attention this morning. First of all, you see on the back table when you leave this morning, there are some um, little handouts there uh, with a campaign we call Meet the Need here around Sabine Creek. And there are needs that exist all across our community. This last summer, we raised food for the food pantry at Helping Hands. We also collected school supplies for a local elementary school as kids went back to school. This Thanksgiving, we're going to be trying to collect um, uh, food as well for Helping Hands to help uh, provide families with uh, an opportunity to share a Thanksgiving meal together. This Christmas, we'll be collecting toys through a local toy drive to go to underprivileged children within the context of our community. Listen, there are needs in the lives of families all around us. And unfortunately, the church at times is asleep beneath deck. And they're not, they're not paying attention. They're calloused and hard-hearted to the needs that exist around them. And meet the need is an opportunity for you to step into the needs as opposed to away from them. So you can bring canned goods and leave them here from now through November 16th. And we will get them to Helping Hands to help provide for families in our community. There's another way that you can also help provide a Thanksgiving meal for families in our community. In fact, Keith Green and Tim Seiprit through Metro Design Loft and Tim Seiprit's insurance agency are working on family to family. Some of you have seen that, that imagery go out across Facebook where they're going to be basically doing one step beyond just dropping off some canned goods where you're going to be able to help share a Thanksgiving meal with another needy family in our community. And so you can show up and you can pay um, for your Thanksgiving meal and their Thanksgiving meal. And then you can sit down and eat it with them. Right? As opposed to just saying, here's some money and some, some food. I hope you guys stay warm and well fed. But you can actually go sit down and get to know that family and hear their story. You know what God might do if you sat down across the table from somebody else in an environment like that? He may open up opportunities and doors for you and your family, not only, not only to give a meal once a year, but to invest week after week after week after week in that family's life. How amazing would that be? One other opportunity I want to share with you, ways that you can demonstrate this faith and the implications of it, and it's something we've already seen this morning, something many of the families in our congregation have experience with, is through adoption. It's through adoption. See, the reality is that you and I, we're all orphaned kids. We came out of the womb as orphaned children. But Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, that God in love predestined us for adoption. He said, I want him. I want her. And he extended his arms at the cross and he welcomed us in as his adopted sons and daughters. And I love Holly's language in the video earlier because she said there's an orphan crisis in the world. Not just a need, a crisis. When you look at the statistics, there's 153 million Children who in some way, shape, or form are lacking a parent in their life. Whether they've lost, there's 153 million kids who have lost either mother or father in their lives. There's 17 million kids across the globe who have lost both parents in their lives. So there are 17 million kids around the world today 
who will go to bed tonight without the loving embrace of a mother or the firm, the firm yet tender care of a father. Even within our own country, within our own borders, there's 400,000 kids in the foster care system, and about 100,000 of those are eligible for adoption. But every year, when we roll from December 2014 into January 2015, every year, 30,000 of those kids are going to age out without families. It's not just a small drop in the bucket. There is a crisis globally of kids who do not have families. And we who have been adopted by God, as he freely, lovingly, and indiscriminately set his affection upon us, we should consider how we might be a part of freely, lovingly, and indiscriminately setting our affection upon those kids who are in need. And that may be you as a family deciding and feeling God pressing on your heart to adopt, to step forward into that process. Or it may be you going, listen, I don't know if we're ready for that, but we want to help be a part of that in the lives of other people. And so we want to help contribute towards that. You heard Holly say, there's, there's 5,000 here and 10,000 here and 12,000 here to all these people who've got to get a cut of the money in order to make this thing legal. And not be kidnapping. All right? So maybe you could say, God has blessed me financially. I want to help contribute towards that. And I want to let you know that right now, today, that we are starting an adoption assistance fund. It's a designated fund here at Sabine Creek Fellowship. And so if you feel God compelling your heart to give toward those who are moving forward towards adoptions, you can give to them anonymously through the church by giving to the adoption assistance fund fund. You can mark that on an offering envelope. If you go to give online, there's a designation there whenever the drop down box that you can do it that way as well. You can earmark those funds to help families in the life of our congregation who are now or will one day in the future move toward adoption to exercise their personal faith for some public good. God is not safe. He chases us, and he rebukes us, and he rattles our cages at times. He is not safe, but he is good. He is good. And Jonah finds him to be good as we get toward the end of Jonah chapter 1. Let's take a look at that as we close this morning. Consider what Martin Luther said as, as he reflected upon what takes place here in the story of Jonah, he said, not only the ship, but the whole world becomes too small for Jonah. He finds no nook or corner in all of creation, not even in hell, where he might crawl in. And Luther said, Jonah can't get away. He can't get away. Jonah's been trying to find refuge from God, trying to find a place where he can, he can shield himself from God's call and conviction, that place where God's pressing on him. He's been trying to find refuge from God, but what Jonah finds is there is no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God. There is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. In verses 11 through 17, we see a couple of things here. First, we see the futility of finding refuge from God. Notice in verse 13, the sailors are trying to row as hard as they can to get back to land, and they cannot make it. They've done everything that they can. Jonah has done everything that he can to escape God's presence, and God chases him. 
The sailors have done everything they can to try and abate the storm and try and kind of row it out, and they can't do it. And the story teaches us there's great futility in trying to run away from God and find refuge from him, and all of our attempts to work our way out of his storms are futile. But we also see the sufficiency of finding refuge in God. You ever notice whenever Jonah comes finally in the story to say, it's me, he cops to being the cause for the chaos. He says, it's me, I'm the reason all this is so incredibly tumultuous and tempestuous. And he says, listen, here's the solution. You gotta throw me over. That's the only way this storm is gonna stop because God is after me. He's chasing me. And the sailors at first are like, no man, really? That's the only way? Oh, we've got to row harder. And Jonah says, no, that's the only way. And so the sailors, they had previously hurled cargo overboard. Now they take Jonah, this prophet, and they throw him overboard. And as Jonah sinks beneath the wind and the waves, verse 17 tells us that God appoints a fish, a great fish, to swallow Jonah. Jonah didn't know the fish was beneath the waves. All Jonah knew is that he'd been running from God and that the only way to still the storm was to throw himself towards God, into the storm. It's the only way to calm it. That's the only way to quiet it, to give myself fully over to God. And Jonah finds that whenever he does, there is love beneath the waves. There's a refuge for him. He can't find refuge from God. He can only find refuge in God. And there's another sleeper in a boat in the New Testament. The disciples are on the Sea of Galilee trying to row across. And a great storm arises on the horizon and begins to beat them and toss them and throw them. And Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat, Mark tells us, on a cushion. He's pretty comfy back there. And they run to him and they shake him out of his sleep and they say, Jesus, don't you care? And Jesus rises up and he speaks a word to the wind and he speaks a word to the waves. And they cease. See, whereas Jonah was callous, Jesus shows compassion. See, in Jonah, the eye of that storm that God sends and the eye of that hurricane, that eye is full of compassion and grace. And if you've been running from God this morning, the only place that you can find refuge is in Him. The only hope you ever have of that storm stilling in your life is to throw yourself upon Him upon the one who commands the winds and the waves. Let's pray together. Father, we come today thanking you for your grace and mercy. Thanking you for your compassion and kindness. Father, we recognize fully that there is no refuge from you. The book of Jonah teaches us that. Our lives teach us that story as well. But there is refuge in you. And I pray that many would find that this morning who have been running. 
that they would return and they would throw themselves towards you as opposed to running away from you. And they would find beneath the waves and beneath the wind, there's great love. And because they experience your love and grace, that they would begin to practice their personal faith for some public good. And they would find you to be sufficient even in the midst of the raging wind and seas. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.